I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Coming up in the next hour, it's a band whose ebullient melodies and sometimes gloomy lyrics make them sound like Wednesday Adams joined the Ravenettes. It's a world-renowned ad man who grew his business by telling his staff to fail harder, and it's a memoirist who wrote in a letter to her son on his first birthday, You've developed folds of flesh where your wrists should be, making it look as if you're wearing a sweater made out of another baby. It's, it's. It's Livewire with world-renowned ad man Dan Wyden, memoirist Stacey Bolt, and music from the Young Evils on this edition of Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. And you also have uh, poet Scott Poole, who's going to be sitting in the audience, and he's going to write a poem about all of the lessons he's gleaned from the hour. You'll get to see uh, a little bit of comedy from the Faces for Radio Theater. And, of course, we've got music from Ralph Hunley and our house band. Thanks, guys. So, as I mentioned, we're going to have uh, Dan Wyden on the show later. And Dan co-founded Wyden and Kennedy, and they are the ad agency responsible for Nike's Just Do It campaign, and last year's Old Spice I'm on a Horse campaign, among many others. Uh, and, you know, some people might say that advertising has convinced them to buy a few items that they didn't necessarily need. Um, but on the plus side, you know, if you own a business, chances are that advertising has helped you gain customers that you wouldn't have otherwise had. But there's another thing that advertising agencies do that they don't get enough credit for, and that's that they're a training ground for creative thinking. At most ad agencies, it still works a lot like it, it did on Mad Men. There's a team, and they get a creative brief from the client on a campaign, and the copywriter and the art director are thrown together to come up with concepts for the campaign. And if someone's never done it before, it's the collaborative equivalent of throwing a kid in the deep end of the pool and hoping for the best. 
Uh, I was in advertising for 12 years, and learning to collaborate was the single most important skill I took away from it. That, and that if you get an all-company email that there are leftovers from a client meeting in the kitchen, you do not hesitate for a second, because those people are like a swarm of locusts in Buddy Holly glasses and skinny jeans. But collaboration doesn't just make your work better, it makes you better. It forces you to learn to get along with other creative people. It forces you to push through the vulnerability that comes with throwing your ideas on the table over and over and over again, only to watch most of them die tragically, like a character who coughed once in a 19th century Russian novel. But most importantly, it forces you to learn that your ideas aren't you. Smart people have terrible ideas all the time. It's an inevitable consequence of having a lot of them. I actually had an, I, I had an agreement with all the art directors I worked with. I said, I promise never to let your worst ideas define you if you do the same for me. And I will also tell you if you have food in your teeth, a bat in the cave, or a weird errant chin hair. <laughs> That's the deal. Also, that works for marriages, by the way. Um... So inevitably, if, you can, if, if your ideas survive the concepting phase, their next stop would be another great creative learning experience, the focus group. Now, you won't really learn anything from the focus group themselves, but the experience of sitting for two days behind mirrored glass, listening to people who are being paid in free Subway sandwiches rip apart months of your work is so, is so soul-crushingly brutal that you can survive anything after it. A bad review for your first novel, three audience members on opening night of your play, being slowly crushed by a steamroller. That's preferable. An actual focus group comment on one of my ads was, the headline is hard to understand until you read it. Which is true, but I'm just not sure how helpful that is. <laughs> Applique sweatshirt lady. <laughs> so maybe my experience might not prove my point, but you cannot deny that some of our best writers started in advertising. F. Scott Fitzgerald, he wrote short stories at night while he worked for $35 a week as an advertising copywriter in Muscatine, Iowa. His greatest success was the catchy tagline for the Muscatine steam laundry, we keep you clean in Muscatine. <laughs> and some credit Kurt Vonnegut's compact style to the fact that he was a copywriter for General Electric before he was a novelist, and even Dr. Seuss supported his family through the Great Depression by creating flit bug spray ads for the Standard Oil Company with the tagline, quick Henry, get the flit. And I don't know exactly what these writers took away from their years of writing ad copy, but what I took away was a tough but important lesson about art and commerce, and that is that art is commerce. No matter what you create, it is a product, and you'll always have a client, whether it's your editor or your producer or your audience. I once took a workshop with a playwright who claimed that her work was her work, and she would never change a word of it even if no one came. And I smiled and I wished her luck, and I imagined what I thought would be her future, performing plays in her living room for an orange tabby named Bertold Brecht. It's not necessarily a play I'd want to see, but Bertold seems to be enjoying it.
If the young evils are actually evil, we're all in trouble because the Seattle Five Pieces happy, frothy indie pop is so catchy that if their lyrics told us to, say, get naked and give a public speech about why we should sell nuclear arms to Iran, we might actually just do that. Here with a song from their most recent EP, Foreign Spells, please welcome the young evils. You're not like me, but I wish you were You'd find me wishing on this other world Dead animals is what will become Dead animals is what will become It's bad timing, everything you've done Information can be found at theyoungevils.com, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Garrison Kaler, and coming up this week on Prairie Rome Companion. Uh, wait, cut. Sorry, cut. Sorry, Dennis. I, look, can we just start again? I've, I've just come from the optometrist, Dr. Krebsbach. My pupils are just really dilated, and I'm having trouble seeing the script. Okay, uh, here we go, one more time. Three, two, one. This is Ferryman Keebler and Nest Time on Barry's old contraption. Wait, wait, what the hell does this say? Hold on. <laughs> Jesus, my pupils must be the size of half dollars. Oh, by God, okay. 
I was a little nervous before the exam, Dennis. I mean, no one wants another man touching his eyeballs, so I just, I took one of the volume we have around the house, and boy, it is really kicking in. It is making me feel a little, uh, a little squishy. I'm feeling, I'm feeling squishy. Mami, me more, mami, me more, mami, me more. Hello, hello, hello. Winnebago. Does my voice sound odd to you, or is it just me? What, what's that, Dennis? Yeah, I, I, took a, I took a couple Valium. Yeah, three or four tops. It's, well, it said just take one, I mean, but I mean, look at me, I'm 6'4", I'm huge. Hey, can we get some tacos brought into the studio? Really? Really just go for some tacos. <laughs> tacos. What? What? Oh, yeah, I was saying tacos would be really good. Pineapple tacos. Or maybe a smoothie, like a jamba juice. A, ja- a jamba juice. Jamba jamba juice. I'll go ahead and try it. It's fun to say. A jamba juice. Oh, jamba juice. All right, one more time, Dennis. 11, 8, 10. This is Ferris and Wheeler, and we've got some stories from Lake Wobiwo and music from a swarm of bees. Just a whole damn swarm. It's, ter- it's going to be terrific. That's this week on Carrie's Town O'Banion. I'm going to eat a taco with my mouth. Thank you. That was Sean McGrath. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that wishes you would stop marking every email as urgent because that's the exact same thing as marking none of them as urgent. <laughs> Coming up, ad man Dan Wyden, humorist Stacey Bolt, more from the Young Evils, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Stacey Bolt is a Livewire listener favorite, but we haven't seen her in a while because she has been holed up with a laptop and 1,400 bottles of red wine working on her book, Breeding in Captivity. It is a surprisingly funny memoir about her struggles with infertility treatments and adoption, which I know sounds hilarious, but it really is. She actually recently sold the book, and fans should look for it late in 2013. Here were some thoughts on parenting while old. Please welcome Stacey Bolt to Livewire. I remember. 
remember the day I realized that my parents were old. I was in the second grade and had been noticing the differences between my friends' parents and my own. The moms had smooth faces, the dads had hair, and they all seemed to be active and involved in their children's lives. My parents weren't. Too tired, they'd say, while watching footballs and drinking martinis in their matching recliners. Too tired. One afternoon, while helping my dad with yard work, I asked the question that had been keeping me awake at night. Are you and mom going to die? He stood up and took a deep breath, knowing that this is one of parenting's big questions. Everyone dies eventually, sweetheart, he said, resting his hand on my shoulder. It's just a natural part of life. No, I mean, are you and mom going to die, like, now? (laughs) Because that's what I believed. My parents were so obviously old and infirm that I figured they could drop dead at any moment. (laughs) I lived in fear of being called into the principal's office. I'm sorry to have to tell you that your parents have dropped dead, (laughs) Stacy. They were very, very old. (laughs) When I was born, my mom and dad were 38 and 40, respectively. When my son was born, I was 40 and my husband was 43. That was five years ago which means that I could drop dead any minute. (laughs) How we got here is a shining example of what a jackass biology can be. When my body was ready for pregnancy, I was a freaking idiot, with a bong in one hand and a stack of maxed out credit cards in the other. (laughs) And when I had finally grown up enough to be a parent, my eggs had fallen and they couldn't get up. When we signed the adoption papers the day after our son was born, my husband and I were as ready for parenthood as two people could possibly be. Most of that is due to the rigorous nature of the adoption process. Nobody accidentally adopts a baby. There are no reality shows called, I didn't know I was adopting. (laughs) Not when you have to submit to an FBI background check, fill out a 20-page questionnaire designed to make you wonder if you might actually be a serial killer after all and have a social worker come to your home and point out everything that's likely to kill your theoretical child before his first birthday. As a side note, if any of you are struggling to get pregnant and someone tells you you should just adopt, you have my permission to slap that person really, really hard. So yes, we were prepared, much in the same way a medical student is prepared to perform surgery for the first time. They've studied everything there is to study, they've watched others do it, but they've never actually put scalpel to flesh, and holy God, that's a lot of blood. Preparation, as any actual parent will tell you, is worth absolutely nothing when you're being woken up every two hours for three months straight. Preparation wilts in the face of a Category 5 up-the-back blowout in the middle of Target. My husband David and I told ourselves that things would get easier as our son got older. That once he was sleeping through the night, or potty trained, or driving himself to college, (laughs) life wouldn't be so bone-crushingly exhausting. But as he got older, so did we. One of the hardest things about being an older parent is that you remember vividly what life was like before you had a child. You have years of memories to draw on. 
memories of free time and weekends and impulsive decisions, of staying awake past 8.30 and having conversations that don't involve counting to three in a very stern voice. You remember all of those things, and you remember them with the knowledge that you will never have them again. And then you fall asleep because your child woke you up before dawn by jumping on your head. Our son Xander is an amazing, beautiful miracle of a child. And I don't want you to think for a moment that we regret anything, because we don't. This is a child who is desperately wanted and fought for. But he is, as they say in the parenting books, a handful. First, it was his size. At three months old, he weighed 20 pounds and could no longer fit in his infant car seat. I'm pretty sure my chiropractor has a boat named after him. When Xander was two, he ran up to give me a hug, but instead gave me a black eye when his giant head connected with my face. Today, his giant head houses a giant brain that regularly outsmarts his sad old parents. When we we play Monopoly, he's the banker, and he beats the ever-loving crap out of us. Most of the time, I'm afraid to leave him alone, because if I do, I'm pretty sure he'll figure out how to make a bomb out of toothpaste and Legos. Once, after being told he couldn't do something he wanted to do, my son, the boy who will someday choose my nursing home, looked me straight in the eye and said, I think it's really sad that you had to wait so long to be a mommy, and now you're really bad at it. I swear to God. (laughs) That's a true story. My grandmother used to have a framed cross-stitch on her wall that said, the people who come into your life will either be a blessing or a lesson. I believe my son is both. I remember what my life was like before he came along, but I also can't imagine it without him. If I'd become a mother in my 20s, I would have had more energy, but less sense. And more importantly, that child wouldn't have been this child, this brilliant, smart-ass of a child. We were supposed to be together, he and I. I know that like I know my own name. Yes, I wish I had more energy. And yes, I wish I could somehow catch up on all the sleep I've lost over the last five years. But if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it all over again, just the same way. Because when he made that crack about me being a bad old mommy, I didn't get mad. I laughed. I laughed until I fell down. (laughs) Until he finally had to abandon his tantrum and laugh with me. I don't know if I could have done that in my 20s. But in my 40s, I have the wisdom to look at the long game. Someday, that boy is going to be a teenager. And when he is, I'm going to make it my job to embarrass him as often and as publicly as possible. I just have to stay alive that long. Thank you. Stacey's book, Breeding in Captivity, will be available in the fall of 2013. To keep up with her, visit stacybolt.com. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets. Guys, Christmas is coming up. Every second brings it closer. By the time you finish listening to this, it will probably be Easter.
Whole Foods Market has organic and heritage turkeys that they'll even brine for you as the time between the holidays whizzes past. More information about Whole Foods turkeys and the nature of time can be found on the internet. The turkey part will be at WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right, so what we're thinking is, uh, oh, oh, there's Joel. Joel, get in here, you crazy nut. The meeting started. What? I thought it started at, oh, it is 10. <laughs> That's me, Joel, for you. I thought it, I was like, I thought it started at, oh, it is 10. <laughs> See what I did? We yeah. know you just said that. <laughs> All right, come on, hurry up, dude. Cool. Hey, uh, Jeff, I brought you a Latino. Oh, that's offensive, Joel. No, 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 it's a Latino. It's a latte, only smaller. Half the caffeine. Thank you, Joel. No probs. They're actually pretty good, Carmen. Ooh, true. Okay, so, new advertising venues. As we know, people are fast-forwarding through ads on TiVo. No one buys magazines anymore. And radio. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. Radio, right? Come on. Oh, radio. So, as an agency, we have to figure out new ways to advertise. So, ideas. Carmen. All right. Actors are getting tons of tattoos these days, so why not take advantage of that? Here's the dance finale from Black Swan. But hey, suddenly I'm craving pepperoni because Natalie Portman has a giant Godfather's Pizza logo tattooed on her back. Nice. Here's Magic Mike. But how about Magic Milk? We tattoo got on one of his pecs and milk on the other. That's kind of gross. But you get the idea. And we can make them permanent. It would probably only cost a few hundred million to convince Tom Cruise to get a pair of Ray-Bans tattooed on his face. Well, that's good, solid thinking. Joel, what do you got? Okay, Carmen, your idea is nice. But this, this is revolutionary. Friendvertising. Friendvertising. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. We find our target. In this test case, it's Stephanie Brundage of Houston, Texas. We hire a friendvertiser who spends several months ingratiating herself to Stephanie. Wow. This seems like a lot of trouble to Let go Let me finish, for- Carmen. Just watch what happens in this video. Come on in. We're watching Friends with the Benefits of No Strings Attached. Yay! I brought this yellowfin Merlot and a Sara Lee coffee cake so we can enjoy our time together instead of slaving over a hot stove. Nice. Yes, it is. But she's not just there for the fun times. I can't believe it. Now I'm wondering if Bill ever loved me at all. He probably didn't. Here, take this Kleenex tissue with aloe and an Ativan from the good people at Pfizer. Oh, you're the best. This is so innovative. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a lot to go through if we don't know if it even works. Oh, we don't? Well, how are you enjoying that Latino? Oh, very much. It's delicious. I love it. But wait. Are you? I am. The Cafe Tino company hired me two years ago. You are my test case. Oh, my God! (laughs) You got me. You got me. So, that ski trip we took last year? I got you to try Mocha Chocotino. And when you were the best man at my wedding? Were those Kahlua Tinos at the reception? I think they were. Wait, didn't you give him one of your kidneys? That was Korean black market. And to be honest, it could have been a tiger kidney for all I know. Wait a minute, wait wait a minute. So you never really liked me? I am not a fan of you. Brilliant! (laughs) I'm sold! Uh, Guys! Let's do this thing. I I think paying someone for two years to get one customer isn't the most cost-effective way to... Come on, Carmen. No sour grapes. So, Joel, 
Do you want to go to Hootie's tonight? Half price wings. Nah, dude, I'm off the clock. And I don't like you. Oh my God, I'm lonely. That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Trisha Ferguson. Our next guest founded the advertising agency Wyden & Kennedy along with co-founder David Kennedy in 1982 with their first client, Nike. Since then, they've grown to be one of the largest independently owned agencies in the world with clients like Coca-Cola, Chrysler, Levi's, Old Spice, and most recently, Facebook. Dan started as a copywriter and coined the term Just Do It for Nike, as well as acting as a creative director over the years on hundreds of accounts. He was listed as number 22 in Advertising Age's top 100 ad people of the 20th century, and he is only one of 32 members of the One Club Creative Hall of Fame. In his non-existent free time, he also serves on the board of EcoTrust and is the founder of Caldera, a nonprofit arts education organization and camp for at-risk youth in Sisters, Oregon. Please welcome Dan Wyden to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Dan. Well, good to be here. It's great to have you. So um, I wanted to talk um, a little bit about the beginnings of, of Wyden and Kennedy um, because it was so tiny. I mean, I, I read that you were in the basement of an old union hall with a borrowed typewriter and a payphone. Um, but you talk about how Wyden and Kennedy started off as a ship of fools, and that's why you've, con that's why you've, you've been so successful. Can you talk about what that means? People don't really set out to build a large international advertising agency in Portland. I mean, there's very few consumer products. So Kennedy and I just, all we wanted to do was to work on Nike and do some really great work and maybe grow to be about oh, a couple dozen folks. You know? mm -hmm. and, um, and we couldn't, I mean, we had two things going for us. We had Nike and then we had ESPN and it seemed like they were so crazy that they let us do really, really interesting advertising. And um, so we get a lot of, well, the only kids we could hire really were kids right out of school or delinquents or, <laughs> or people that have been fired everywhere else, you know? And so that's why we knew we, what we were. We were a ship of fools and, and held that title proudly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the problem is when, they, when the work started showing up, then people would, the big guys would come in, offer a lot of money, and these kids would, would take off. So what we decided to do is just try and make the culture so damn sticky that nobody really wanted to leave because they were having so much fun. Well, yeah, and it definitely seems like, like that's happened. Um, so many people talk about uh, White and Kennedy as a family. And I, I, Dysfunctional. Is but, it, well, <laughs> what family isn't, yeah. you know? Um, I wanted to, to go back to, uh, this is a Nike ad from 1995, and, and it's a bunch of young girls uh, just looking at the camera and talking about what their life would be like if their parents let them play sports. If you let me play, you let me play sports. I will like myself more. I will have more self-confidence. If you let me play sports. If you let me play. If you let, if you let me play. I will be 60% less likely to get breast cancer. I will suffer less depression. If you let me play sports. I will be more likely to leave a man to beat. If you let me play. I'll be less likely to get pregnant before I want to. I will learn. I will learn what it means to be strong. To be strong. If you let me play. Play sports. If you let me play sports. <laughs> 
Those were some incredibly powerful statistics. Significantly more likely to leave a man who beats her, significantly less likely to get pregnant before she wants to. Um, and this, the, the reason that I loved this ad so much and I remembered it was that it felt more like uh, social activism than an ad to me. Can you talk about sort of what was, how the agency approached this, this campaign differently than other campaigns? Well, I, I think what has probably gotten lost over the years is what an activist company Nike is. I mean, um, they've grown very large and they've had a bunch of issues that they've worked on pretty hard, but they have, it was very much like a religion almost of getting people back in health, good health. It started with uh, Bowerman getting seniors walking. And um, so those, so there's always been a number of pieces of communication we've done that were not trying to sell something, but um, to try and see this, the value of sport. Um, I read a, a speech that you gave in 2003, and you said, um, I have this addiction to chaos. I love it mm. when I'm a bit anxious, and the older that I get, the more I need what's upset me. This is working really me. well right now. <laughs> <Is> it, yeah. <laughs> but you, say, you said, I love this agency the most when it's off balance. So what, what works about chaos for you? I don't know, but it's really true, that off-balance thing. It's like when you're in a car filled with people and you're going around a corner so fast that everybody has to lean to one side so it doesn't tip over, uh-huh. that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and you find some sense of community and some sense of purpose in all that chaos. I was reading this book and they were talking about how uh, when you sleep at night, there's... Um, for about one-fiftieth of a second, um, most of the time your brain is just little neurons are going boing, 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 real randomly. But sometimes they come together in a real harmonic, almost like a jazz group. And then there's another period of time where they become extremely frenetic and just are buzzing with each other and very, uh, with no pattern whatsoever, but a lot of intensity. And it's it's that chaos period is where you solve the problems you bring to your sleep. Well, how do you, if, when you're talking about this chaos and, and if you apply that then to your work style, yeah. how do you then rein in those ideas that are born in that period? How do you sort of organize them? Well, you have, you have a bunch of people really working on these things. Yeah. Um, there's usually an... Uh, there's a creative group of writers and art directors and digital folks, and, and then there's media guys and strategists and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know how that thing works. It's just people... <laughs> a lot of times they do it drunk. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, I read in... Um, That's I read what I did, anyway. Yeah. Well, I know that some of the tenets of, of the agency uh, you mentioned may have may have been, you, you, come, you came about them maybe a little bit uh, loaded. Some of the, I, I actually have some of them here. All right. All yeah, and right. I was going to throw them out. These are, these are widenisms, and I wanted to just throw some widenisms. These are sort of rules of the agency. They're filled um, with wisdom. Uh, no sharp stuff. What does that mean? I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, we, when we we were working for, David and I were working for this uh, small agency called William Kane, and when he kicked us out, we had a limited number of time to pull our work out with us, and 
Kennedy found this piece of paper in one of the drawers that was in a kid's handwriting, and it had a bunch of rules about no sharp stuff, shut up when someone is talking, uh-huh. and that kind of stuff. And we, so that, that has been our official set of rules. That, <laughs> we have it blown up uh, in handwriting on um, all the walls of every agency we have around the world. But isn't it, I mean, isn't it about... Nobody knows what it all means. It just, <laughs> you have to have but rules think... or... But that seems to make sense, actually, because they sound like rules of play, you know? And if yeah. it is a kid, and, you know, uh, John Cleese, uh, in, a, in a speech about creativity, talked about uh, having this, this, you know, your mind is sometimes opened and it's sometimes closed, mm. and, and the open space is where you play, you know? Yeah. And you figured out somehow to foster so much creativity in so many people, so you've created this space of play. I mean, how have you done that? Well, you, play with a purpose, essentially. Yeah, I guess you just, um, there's tension around um, deadlines in our business. I mean, they're pretty intense, and there's a lot of money at stake. And um, so, uh, well, and you have to understand, we're not, <clears throat> although we're, we have offices in eight countries around the world, we're not grown-ups. We, we, we are a bunch of people trying to solve problems in, in interesting ways. And we developed a lot of... We have, like, every year... Well, in fact, uh, I think it's next week we're having the Widening Kennedy pie off. Sure. Um, because pie is better than cake, so... <laughs> so we have probably usually about 80 to 90 entries and a big judging thing, and the agency shuts down for all afternoon that day. Um, There's things like that, Um, plus the drinking and drugs, probably. (laughs) Well, if you're you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking to Dan Wyden of Wyden and Kennedy about drugs. (laughs) About their work style, how they get stuff done. I'm actually a stand-in. He's not here right now. (laughs) Exactly. to go back to, you talked about, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the tenets of the agency is fail harder, and you were just mm. talking about how the stakes are so high, mm. and that seems like such a difficult thing to do, to really put yourself out there, try things that you've never tried before, when there are millions of dollars at stake. Did you, do you find that it was easier to make mistakes when you were smaller? When you were a smaller agency, was, it, was there not so much? Well, you can't take yourself seriously, you know? Whether yeah. you're a person or an organization, you just, you, you'll just cramp up. If, I mean, I don't take myself seriously. Do you take yourself seriously? Uh, uh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't if I were you. I... <laughs> it's weird. I feel slightly pooped on. <laughs> It all washes um. <laughs> off. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's an excellent entree. Um, I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about about Caldera. You founded yeah. Caldera in 1996. It's mm. a summer camp for kids uh, with limited opportunities to come together and and make art. Um, so, how have you seen art help these kids? In, all, in the years that, that Caldera's been around? 
Oh, gosh. Um, it's really the, the creative field, when you kids are introduced to it, it's an amazing release. Um, these kids are middle school through high school kids, and um, we bring in artists and naturalists, and, and we, have a, we bought some property up, up in the mountains. That, it's Caldera is, a, is named after a caldera. It's, it's Blue Lake up there just before it feeds uh, Saddle Lake. And it was supposed to be a retirement thing for me. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I bought the property and um, was just going to sit on it. It had been an old resort. And then the Oregonian was kind enough to, on the front page of their paper one morning, said, Ad Mogul closes Blue Lake. <laughs> so... <laughs> thought, well... Super popular. Super, super popular. So I... <laughs> So I, I, my youngest daughter, I was running around India at the time, and I said, come home, I need you. And so she, Cassie, started this. And it's been the joy of, of our family's life. I mean, these kids are like, they are like family to me. And uh, what, I think what happens with art is once these kids can find their voice, whether it's through photography or writing or drumming or whatever that is, they have a place in the world, you know? And then they can build off of that. Yeah. And they don't necessarily... That does, I thought they'd all turn out to be ad people, but apparently not. <laughs> uh, you were just grooming yeah. the kids. Yeah, for later. It's, it's interesting because so many of the... I, I, I have friends who have worked at Wyden and Kennedy over the years, and, and they all talk about it like it's a family. And, and then I've seen Caldera kids say that it just really feels like this is their second family. Mm. Is there, what is the impetus in you to create these really familial places, these second families for people to go to? I'm just lonely. (laughs) 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 Just don't want to go home. No, it's... (laughs) Well, I just, like I say, I don't think anybody there really takes themselves too seriously. Yeah. And um, one of the, if you walk into any of our offices, um, you'll see uh, and when you first come in, there'll be a, either a picture wall or self-portraits of everybody who works there. And to me, that's kind of the riddle we're trying to solve is how do you create a culture that encourages everybody to be totally themselves, and explore all their possibilities, good, bad, and the ugly, uh, and come together with a bunch of other people with that much freedom and solve problems. That, that tension between the individual and the collective yeah. is really interesting. Really, really interesting. It's a fun place to play. Well, and you've, you have created this, this environment that sort of gives birth to, to creative people and kind of sends them out into the world. Well, they do create people actually there. <laughs> We <laughs> it's just one of the projects. It's it the incubator. It's the Portland incub- incubator. We're, we're also known as Wedding and Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just before you go, White and Kennedy turns 30 years old this mm. year. So what for you is, is your big lesson of the last 30 years? Mm. I think it's just uh, I've learned that probably the best thing you can do is just be yourself, have fun, create a create a place where people can come and do the best work with their lives. You know? mm-hmm. If it's not about you, it's about the place. 
and the work. Yep. So moving forward, is there anything, is there a project that you're, yet another project that you're piling on? or? You yeah, gonna... there's a bed I have in mind, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you yeah, with thank us. Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks so much. Dan Wyden of Wyden and Kennedy. You're listening to Livewire, the only show in the history of public radio to share the same name with a song from Motley Crue's debut album, Too Fast for Love. If you're in the Portland area on December 15th, come to our live show at the Alberta Rose Theater with author Daniel Handler of Lemony Snicket fame, author, podcaster, and Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day, Stephen Tobolowsky, and music from the Double Clicks and Ages and Ages. Find more information at livewireradio.org. Welcome once again to American Innovators. This week, it's the story of Nathaniel and Winifred Blazington, a 19th century frontier family. Yes, they were actual pioneers in the pioneering sense of pioneering, but they were also pioneers in what's become the foundation of many American marriages, passive aggression. A stack of their letters from 1848 discovered last year cemented them as perhaps the earliest practitioners of passive-aggressive technology. Nathaniel was making long treks to find his fortune in gold in California while Winifred remained on their homestead. Here is a sampling of those letters. My dearest Nathaniel, it has been three days since you left and my heart still breaks. But thankfully, I am reminded of you every single day because your boots marked your muddy path through the cabin the morning that you left. Yours in cleanliness and godliness, Winifred. My lovely Winifred, I had such a heavy heart before I read your uplifting letter. It is the little details that mean so much when we're suffering in the deep chill of winter. And as I may lose my feet before the end of this deadly frost, just imagining those footprints that you could have easily cleaned up by now gives me so much comfort. Yours in frostbite, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, my love, what a joy to read your note and know you're still so concerned with the comings and goings of the small cabin you abandoned so many months ago. Please know that if I pass from this terrible cough, it wasn't because I wasn't able to close that window you said you'd fix. There are so many other possible causes of illness on the dark, barren, lonely plain you inexplicably chose to build a house upon. Love, Winifred. My still lovely Winifred. Oh, the thrill of receiving a letter from home when we never know what the next day will bring. And although I was devastated to leave you alone on that snowy plain, I am comforted by the knowledge that your huge, yeti-like feet preclude the need for costly and cumbersome snowshoes. Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Well, at least I still have my feet. Winifred. And that's obviously where the letters devolved into aggressive aggression. It was clear, though, that this couple was invested in advancing the art of passive aggression, if only based on the number of weeks and couriers it took to deliver each of their vitriol-laden missives. 
we salute them. This has been American Innovators. Tune in next week when we profile Hortense and Martin really the co-inventors of sarcasm. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a party that happens inside your headphones with tiny little people and little pigs in blankets and other microscopic crudite. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, the Young Evils.
so much, everybody. The Young Abels. And now, skating to the dance of the sugar plum fairies, it's America's ice dancing sweethearts, Amelia and Duffy Parker Evans. Go, 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 go! Don't rush me! Like you rushed the salmon last night. Oh my god, we are not still talking about the salmon, are we? Go backwards. I don't just, I just don't understand how you can get that wrong. Well, it's easy, Amelia. When a person needs new glasses and the numbers on the oven are tiny, speed up, speed up. For God's sakes, this isn't Dance with the Sugar Plum Grannies. Is that a dig about my age? Oh, don't touch me. I have to touch you, Amelia. Emphasis on have to. Just look at how in love they are. Just don't get that squeezy cheese from your nachos on my sequins. This is the part where you pick me up. And it's their famous lover's lift. Yeah, you don't have to remind me. Oh, God, you're heavy. How many lattes did you have today? That's none of your business. Oh, it's not? Well, all I, all I know is that last week in Cleveland, you were a grande. And now you're a venti, and I'm the one who has to pay the barista. Well, that's a ridiculously strained metaphor. Well, good. It'll match my sciatic nerve. Oh. Now get off of me. Wow, she almost went into the audience on that one, folks. Oh, it was just so awful. It was like eating fish-flavored shoelaces. Yeah, I had to eat it too, okay? Do you think I ruined it on purpose? I don't know. Did you? And you don't even know what shoelaces taste like. Maybe they're delicious. Oh, it's the spinning Eskimo kiss. Oh, you're being ridiculous. Smile for that sick kid in Section E. How can I tell where Section E is? The room is spinning. Well, just smile everywhere. What does he have again? Oh, I don't know. It starts with an L. Or a G. Oh, wow. You're really altruistic. Oh, who are you to talk? You don't know any of the letters. The Charleston now, you idiot. Oh, look, it's Charleston time, ladies and gentlemen. You know, sometimes I dream that you have a disease where your skin and flesh slowly slough off and that all that's left is a cruel skeleton. Oh, you mean like your mother? Oh, my God. It's time for the finale, folks. Coming up, a double butterfly jump to the famous death spiral. He's got her life in his hands. Hey, did you hear that? Oh, if you let go, I will sue you so hard. Yeah, how's your lawyer going to communicate with you when you're in a coma? Oh, I don't know. I've been communicating with you all these years, haven't I? Another amazing performance from Amelia and Duffy Parker Evans, America's Ice Dancing Sweethearts. (sighs) I thought that went well. Always a pleasure. That was Trisha Ferguson, Sean McGrath, and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. Uh, House poet Scott Poole has been sitting in the audience and uh, watching the shenanigans that have ensued over the course of the hour, and uh, he has been furiously writing all of the lessons that he's learned, so please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight I love collaboration, just not now. I'm really, really ready for collaboration later. I'm ready to listen. I just cleaned my ears alone in my personal restroom. 
Could you call me and leave a message? Because I'm a renowned solitaire champion and I'll be practicing. I'm kind of busy. I'm exploring a metaphor for a bad passive-aggressive relationship, which is like trying to collaborate with a dead possum in the rainy street while you're on three or four Valium tops. So my posse possum posse, what do you think of my pitch for diapers for old parents? Hold on, there's a car coming, wait. Around the corner with everyone leaning to one side. Hold on. Can you hear me from across the street? I feel we have a communication here. It's diapers you can share with your kid because you're so old you can both wear them. They're expandable. On the adult, they look perfect. On the child, they look like they're wrapped in a comforter, like snuggle. Dan Wyden wears them. He's collaborating with me right now. Okay, I just said that to fish a comment out of the caldera of you. But when you're yelling at a dead possum in the street, people don't really rally to your cause. In short, I'm very close to collaborating with you right now, so please call back. Sorry, the answering machine is broken. Thank you. Scott Poole, that's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Stacey Bolt, Dan Wyden, and the Young Evils. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. The show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and Scott Poole. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 